Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 2015, another novel adaptation of Jane Eyre was released into the world, Re-Jane by Patricia Park. Park's version of the character, Jane Eyre, is named Jane Ree. Jane Ree is half Korean-American, half white American, a New Yorker in her early 20s. She's been living with her aunt and uncle, trying to break into the finance world, but is struggling with early adulthood. Patricia Park did research for her adaptation of Jane Eyre in Korea on a Fulbright scholarship. The New York Times said that, quote, Jane Rhee may start her journey with ties to Jane Eyre, but she makes her own way in the world. And the result is a truly fresh, modern take on the coming-of-age novel. Park skips Jane Rhee's childhood. This Jane takes a live-in nannying job in Brooklyn, the mad woman in the attic, a woman named Beth, who's a mild Karen and in the middle of her tenure process. Park's version of Rochester is Beth's cheating husband, a man named Ed, the father of Jane's ward. Ed turns out to be open to a true connection with his child's nanny, Jane. But he's also a little bit weak and kind of whiny. When Jane's affair with Ed inevitably hits the fan, Jane goes to seek out her mother's family in Seoul. She goes in search of cousins and a sense of home and identity in her imagined version of Korea. She leaves New York City on September 10th of 2001. She finds and connects with her cousins in Seoul. She also finds another love interest. But really... She finds herself, realizing that she is not half Korean and half white, or half American and half Korean, or any other number of combinations, but is entirely herself and contains all of those combinations and more. We are interested in particular with this novel, not only because it's fantastic, which it is, but we're also interested because it does something so important. Jane Eyre takes Jane's Britishness deeply for granted as the baseline for goodness. Her Britishness, her pale skin, is part of why Rochester loves her. Park's portrayal of a half-Korean-American Jane helps us see that it was never Jane's Britishness or her whiteness that made her special. 
although it did help in Rochester's racist eyes. It was her strong sense of self that made her so remarkable. And that is what Jane Ree finds in Korea. When Jane comes back to a post-9-11 New York City, she comes back not to Ed, but to a life she feels more confident in living. At the end of the novel, a true H-E-A, Jane is single, a CFO of a company she runs with her best friend, and is reunited emotionally with the surrogate family that raised her. We were lucky enough to get Patricia Park, author of Read Jane, on the phone. And just before you hear my conversation with Patricia, we want to tell you that we are doing a fundraiser for the Loveland Foundation. The Loveland Foundation provides free therapy for Black women and girls, and I'm sure I don't need to tell you that we are in the middle of a mental health crisis in the United States and that it is particularly bearing out on Black women and girls. We have a $10,000 goal for our community to raise money for this incredible foundation, and you can find out more at hotandbotheredrompod.com. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. Hi, Patricia. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really an honor. Hi, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. So my first question is just like, why did you want to adapt Jane Eyre? It is not an easy adaptation. I would say that the difficulty level is like 11 out of 10. And I know Read Jane isn't a total like note for note adaptation, but I'd love to hear why this book. I guess it's kind of audacious, right, that I took this revered classic and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to set it in the world of blue collar Korean American queens. You know, Victorianists everywhere must be rolling in their graves. But it it actually started with, you know, when I first read Jane Eyre, I was a preteen and I was really struck by how Jane self-identified as poor, obscure, plain, and little. I mean, she was like the ultimate underdog. And she was such a departure from these beautiful Disney heroines that I was weaned on. She's even different from all the Jane Austen, like the pretty, but like kind of poor, but they still don't work all day. Like that whole cast of heroines. And I realized too that, you know, when I, when I was growing up, my mother would, you know, when I would misbehave, she would say to me in her particular limited English, you act like an orphan. And I, I never understood that. I'm like, how do you act like one? And for her generation of post-war Koreans or wartime Koreans to act like an orphan meant you behaved in a way as if you had no parents. And I realized that a lot of the treatment that Jane Eyre faces within her, the construct of her Victorian world, she's called mischievous, friendless, childless, the sheer hostility that she's often faced with, I think is tied a lot to that Victorian understanding or the construct of the orphan as something kind of mercurial, dangerous, and it seems similar to the Korean construct. So my mind kind of drew a link between these two very different cultures and communities, and Rejane Jane was born. Can you help me just unpack for a minute that accusation that your mom would make? Was it that you act as though nobody has taught you manners? Or was there like an original sin of orphanhood? (laughs) For one, in Korean culture, in a culture like mine where I was born in America but raised by Korean immigrants, 
there was a lot of talk of having a good family education. And mm-hmm. all of your education, all of your modes of conduct came from your family. And Korean culture is one where, you know, we have some distant relative in, in the countryside of Korea who has a, a record book of generations of my family, generations and generations. So bloodlines are very important. Family values are And I think tied to that, too, is the emergence of the mixed-race orphan, right? With the U.S. military presence in Korea, there were camp towns that were set up in these kinds of bars, juicy bars, and this culture of uh, the local women that, quote-unquote, served the GIs. And you had these mixed-race children as a product. And those children in Korea, until fairly recently, children were not granted Korean citizenship unless it was through the father who was a Korean citizen. So you had then these mixed-race orphans who had no home, no country legally, no father or fatherland. And uh, it just kind of produces this very ambiguous, nebulous identity within an otherwise kind of a homogenous one. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we explored in On Air are the laws that impact people in such interpersonal ways. Her decision to stay with Rochester or not is based on this legal understanding of what rights she would have if she got pregnant. The ways that these laws that are decided on for really pernicious reasons and the ways that they insidiously get into the lives of the vulnerable, I feel like is something that Re Jane deals with and that Jane Eyre deals with. And that's part of what I love about these novels is that they think through, this is what would happen, right? Like, this is what would happen if a character like Jane Re was born and was an orphan and was half Korean and had this white father, et cetera. And this, this is the life that she could potentially live with all of those constraints. Yeah. And I think that's part of the enduring classic nature of the original Jane Eyre, right? That, that it can produce all these other avenues. And there's so much nebulousness too with oh, well, what roles were there for women, for 19th century women? Do they have any choices beyond marriage and or inheritance and or immigration and or death? The four only choices, sometimes all four. So it's so much fun to think about how Jane would translate if she came of age today. Yeah. Well, so what was your goal with Read Jane in terms of thinking through that exact imagination? I mean, you have... You have Jane Marie coming of age in a very specific moment, right? The novel starts in 2000, 2001 and hinges around 9-11. So, yeah, what was your goal in setting it at that time and in setting it in a more modern time? Yeah, I mean, to go back to that poor, obscure, plain and little assessment of Jane herself, I just, I wanted to tell an underdog story and not just a story of someone who survives, but someone who thrives and kind of owns that underdogness. So in the character of my Jane, Jane Ree, she is mixed race. The story she's always been told was that her mother fell in love with some GI and then her mother died and and then her grandfather, you know, sees her like swaddled on his doorstep essentially and is like, oh, damn it, I have to now have to deal with another problem I have to deal with. So the reason why I said it between 2000 and 2003 is because that was an interesting time, not just for New York. We have 9-11 coming up. We have 2003 and the blackout that kind of ends the novel. But in Korea, there were changing ideas towards the mixed race or Honhyeol figure. A very up-and-coming actress was, she was gaining a lot of popularity, but there were rumors that she was mixed and she denied those rumors. She said, no, I'm fully Korean. And then in 2003, I believe, I, I have them in my notes. 
she had a press conference where she outed herself, and we learned that her father was actually a an American um, GI. And from that moment on, her popularity, she was just really on that cusp of breaking out, plummeted. But then only a, a few years later, you did have mixed-race actors like Daniel Henney coming out and just owning it. So I realized Jane could not have been set as I was writing it, I had to set it just a little bit behind to kind of show that there were still these antiquated notions of, okay, you're mixed, uh, then you're wearing essentially your mother's shame on your face because you're not 100% quote-unquote Korean. Yeah. What were the parts when you thought to yourself, okay, I'm going to write about the mixed-race Korean-American experience and Jane Eyre. What were the parts of Jane Eyre that you were like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to adapt that even if I want to, what were what were you most anxious about as far as this retelling? With all due respect to my fellow airheads out there, I had huge issues with Reader, I Married Him. That iconic mm. line, Rochester as the great Byronic romantic or maybe anti-romantic hero. But I read the book when I was 12, right? And I'm like, who's this old guy who keeps jerking Jane around? Like he dresses up as a gypsy, tries to like take her secrets. And then he's like flirting with Blanche Ingram in front of her and subjecting Jane, right? He's like, you must stay in the parlor and watch me flirt, but just hang out by like the windows and be hidden by the curtains. And then finally her beautiful midnight moment in the garden and He's like, all right, you, you know, in the form of you, I want you. And she thinks, all right, it's on. Yeah, love. I'm getting finally what I've always dreamed of. Um, And then on their wedding day, (laughs) he's like, psycho, I forgot to tell you, I'm already married. (laughs) And my wife's up in the attic. So uh, to me, I'm sorry, I know that there are a lot of um, purists out there who feel that um, this is the great, you know, their team Rochester. And for me, that if we're to translate Jane Eyre in the modern day, I think that we have to be accurate and true and authentic to the the choices that modern women have, that someone like Jane Eyre, no matter how pioneering she was for her time, do not. Not only does Rochester act like a fortune-telling gypsy, he takes her two <laughs> sovereigns and keeps them. She, like, oh donates God, them to the that. gypsy. It's ha- We find out later it's half the money she has in the world. He's like, yeah, I'll keep that. What the heck? He's the worst. I love him. The worst. But he's the worst. I mean, Ed, in your book, sucks. Uh, <laughs> I tried. I tried to make him sympathetic. He can cook. He has a lot of feelings. There's a lot of great things about him. I totally understand why Jane goes for him. But I feel like you captured that ambivalence around Rochester really beautifully in your book. I feel like we all have a story maybe of a time when we were taken with someone older, when we were in a vulnerable place. My Jane, Jane Ree, she meets Rochester at a time when she is starved for love. She does not feel a sense of familial love, let alone romantic love. Her whole life she's been told she's the other. She felt like the uncanny valley. Um, She never felt in one identity or the other. And then you have this guy who takes a shine to her. And he is her, almost like her Virgil into the world of academia, uh, Brooklyn. And they share this outer borough sensibility. And so they find common ground. And how special is that? Jane, who's so vulnerable, trying to find her place in the world. And you have this older man who also is kind of, you know, has cheekbones for days, right? 
and he he takes a shine to you and he's he's translating and he's speaking your language. By the end, it's very funny because this novel took me forever to write and I aged while writing it. So maybe in the beginning, I might have identified more with Jane, but towards the end of the novel, I was identifying more with Ed and these horrible like beer pong kind of house parties and you know, the outer stretches of Queens and everyone's drinking from red solo cups. And all you want to do is go home and put on your comfy pajamas. So (laughs) that's kind of Ed's trajectory and my thinking behind that character. Yeah. I'm so sorry I insulted your beloved Ed. I I was just saying that I think that you captured all of the reservations that we have about Rochester of – you're older. You're the employer. Sometimes you're not even nice to her, but we still are rooting for you or certainly understand the appeal. I feel like you did that so well in your book. Oh, thanks so much, Vanessa. But no, yeah, I mean, he's also, my Ed too is controlling. He's a little bit of a mansplainer. You know, he was so um, subordinated, I suppose, when he married Beth, the quote-unquote mad woman in the attic. So now here's this young, fresh woman who's all ears for you. Oh, wait, no, she's not all 100% all ears. So there are many facets to this. Yeah. But, blah, yeah, reader, I did not marry him. <laughs> yeah. Might be a kind of a, a more fitting thesis, I suppose. So that is always the thing that you started pointing us in this direction, the thing that always worries me on behalf of the authors. I'm like, oh no, how are you going to handle Bertha? And you, I mean, you've already hinted at this. You don't have Bertha slash Beth in your novel as this like big secret. You have the mad woman in the attic being the controlling mom boss to the nanny. And you go about it in a very different way. And I'm wondering if you could talk about your feelings about Bertha in Jane Eyre, and then how you thought about adapting her for your book. It's funny because my Bertha has the most power, I would say, in this novel. Yeah. Not only in her positionality as a white female, but as a very well-educated white female who comes of money, who was of the gentrifying wave of Brooklynites buying up the brownstones. So I, I just thought it would be really funny and delightful and a kind of satirical academic send-up if I made Bertha Mason a women's studies tenure track professor, because what could drive you more mad than that? The, the road to tenure. <laughs> and I thought that that would be a really delightful way also to introduce the text, the academic texts and scholarship that kind of treats the understanding of Victorian women and how problematic it can be and contextualizing the limited choices and agency that they had. So, uh, you know, with this character, I not only empowered her in a way that Bertha Mason never was, and yet she's this like larger force. And and in a weird way, in the original Jane Eyre, even though Bertha Mason is kept secret, she is, she haunts the novel in some ways, literally. I mean, Jane constantly feels like she is being surveilled or there's, there's something strange afoot. And I, I think it's fun just to kind of think about those possibilities and how, how we use um, the world around us now to, to retell something that was set deep in the past. Yeah. I love thinking about your book, Rejane, being in conversation with Jane Eyre from 170 years ago and saying, let's give Bertha all the power rather than her having only power that she can take in snatches and fits and starts. Yes, this Beth is going mad, but it's also just like this wonderful gift to the older Bertha of like, we're now going to have you be the one with all the power. 
I just think that that's really beautiful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, maybe I shouldn't have cued the diabolical. I should have cued the empowering female voice roaring <laughs> yes, exactly. laughter. Um, but in, in so doing, I'm actually exposing some of Charlotte Bronte's blind spots. Uh, Absolutely. You know, she takes the other, she takes the ethnic, in quotes, other, and enshrouds that with a, a, a sense of nefariousness almost. And I think it's interesting when you look at some of the scholarship in understanding the mad woman in the attic and understanding how much Charlotte Bronte is just kind of echoing the tropes that were understood in Victorian times of quote unquote colored people. So how awesome that, yes, Jane Eyre is enduring, but also there are some things that don't translate as well or kind of date the text. Yeah. My last question is just, I would love to hear you talk about your Jane of Jane Re and going to Korea. And that is a parallel for Jane Eyre finding family with Sinjin, Diana, and Mary, and how you were thinking about her idea of leaving as a way of finding home. I love that question. I, I thought of Re Jane in three parts, much like how the original Jane Eyre was published in three volumes. And I thought the original novel just had such a breath of fresh air when we meet up with the cousins, you know, first these randos who save her and then surprise, surprise, they're all related. So I I had a lot of fun thinking about that and then thinking about cooking up a new romantic interest for Jane. So in my version, there are three legs of Jane's journey. The first is going from Queens to Brooklyn, where she takes the job as an au pair. Then it's going from New York to Korea, where she reconnects with her family there and gains an understanding of her past. And then part three is the return to Queens and kind of a reappropriation of one's home and identity. With the part in Korea, that's where she meets up with her equivalent of, of Sinjin, Mary, and Diana. She, she meets a guy named Chang Hoon, or Chandler is his self-appointed American name. Uh, his last name is Kang, which is like the Korean word for river. So that was my kind of wink, wink, nod, nod to, to Sinjin. Um, and he um, does everything by the book. You can almost picture his Gatsby-like timetables of, you know, that kind of schedule and Gatsby where he's like, I you know, 7 a.m. morning calisthenics and, you know, all of these things that he can do. So Chang Hoon is like that. And it kind of speaks to this other side of Jane's brain. Uh, romance aside, what Jane learns in Korea, I mean, she has such culture shock. And she was told one version of Korea growing up in Queens. And that was a version of Korea that's kind of stuck in stuck in the amber, right? It was a, a, a moment frozen in time and from the story she heard from her aunt and uncle. For me, similarly, I was born in New York. My parents left Korea for Argentina, actually, in the 60s. And then they, they came to America where they met. So our version of Korea, it was so antiquated. Like, I grew up using the word outhouse for bathroom. You know, pyeonso, that's just what you called it, you know. We talk about going to the yakbang, the, what I thought I was saying was a pharmacy, but it was actually like apothecary, you know. And after grad school, I got a Fulbright grant to research this novel. I got a creative arts Fulbright grant so that I could finish writing and researching this novel 
to address part two that all took place in Korea. And wow, like Jane, I had a lot of that culture shock. So she peddles some of these same antiquated words. She sounds like a six-year-old fuddy-duddy. But one departure is that Jane actually had a much better time adjusting than I did. And it's all tied to beauty and expectations thereof. The, the features that she was so ashamed of her whole life were suddenly celebrated in Korea. Everyone's like, wow, your skin's so pale. Wow, your eyes are so big. You're so tall, blah, blah, blah. I uh, um, I, I mean this with no false modesty, but more than once I was kind of was suggested that I get plastic surgery or why did I not get plastic surgery or why do I look more like the before ads for the plastic surgery on all the subways and I had I had a much harder time. So in that regard, Jane's experience was pure fiction. Maybe it was wish fulfillment for me uh, that she was even able to find, you know, some guy who had the hots for her, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that really opened my eyes, though, in my experience to Korea is that before I left, I kept saying, oh, I'm going back to Korea. I'm going back. I'm returning. And I would use that kind of language surrounding my trip to Korea. But when I was there, it was became very apparent how American I was, how much of a New Yorker I was. So since coming back to the States, that is the kind of language that I use. It has asserted and affirmed my identity as a New Yorker and as an American. So... It was a very valuable experience for me in researching this novel and then in the writing of it that both I and Jane realize who we are in the end. Patricia, thank you so much for writing this amazing book and for taking the time to talk with us today. We're so grateful. Vanessa, Ariana, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be around fellow airheads. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. After talking to Margot Livesey, the author of The Flight of Gemma Hardy, and Patricia Park, I find that there are two things that it seems modern-day authors want to fix about Jane Eyre. The first issue that these authors obviously feel as though they have to address is Bertha. Margot Livesey told us that from the beginning, she knew that the word attic wouldn't be in her novel, let alone a woman locked up in one. In Read Jane, Park's Bertha, Beth in the novel, is quote-unquote mad and that she's patronizing. But she's also mad because she's a woman trying to get tenure in her field while working in her Brooklyn house's attic and trying to raise a daughter as well and live with a cheating husband. This might be a good time to tell you that Park is, by the way, not only an author— 
but assistant professor of creative writing at American University, where she is in the middle of applying for tenure. So Park isn't being tongue-in-cheek when she writes about the tenure process being a quote-unquote crazy-making one. The other thing that both Livesey and Park are interested in is the Rivers family part of Jane Eyre. Neither Livesey nor Park seem to like that Jane falls and almost dies on the doorstep of people who turn out to be her cousins. Both Gemma and Jane Ree go in search of their cousins, leaving their countries of origin to do so. Gemma goes all the way to Iceland, and Jane Ree goes all the way to Korea. It is as if both Park and Livesey want to take out the improbability to make Jane's win hers entirely, not fate's. And I love that. The continuation of these retellings have many gifts. But using Jane Eyre as a way to keep tracking our values as we hopefully evolve seems to be one of them. And having more diverse voices de-Britishize Jane and give this character credit for her own personal growth and successes seems the right path for me. You've been listening to On Air from Hot and Bothered. We're in between seasons right now, but we are gearing up to do a deep dive into Pride and Prejudice in March. And that season will be called Live from Pemberley. If you'd like to support us in making the new season, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod. We want to give a special shout out to some special people who are supporting us in our Jane Bennett tier. Elise Canagrantum, Gretchen Snegus, Molly Real, Kristen Hall, Leah Baxley, Two Cats in a Book, Becky Boo, and Biddy. You are doing so much to make this work possible, and we're so grateful. We are a Not Sorry production. My host during the regular season is Lauren Sandler. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by Acast. Again, a very special thanks to the wonderful Patricia Park for speaking to us for this episode. And thanks, as always, to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, And we'll be back with a conversation about the life of Charlotte Bronte in two weeks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.